the need is so very, very great. We should go, shouldn't we? We should go and tell them of the love of God poured out in the life and the death of Jesus. We should go and we should send our best. And oh, how we must pray. See, we should follow the example of Jesus and we should go. There are two stories in Jesus' life where, compelled by love, he went to places no one expected him to go. And this morning, he is inviting us to follow him to those places. So I hope you understand that Jesus is asking you this morning to follow him. In a way that will cost you. Some of you it will cost nearness to family and familiarity of culture. Others it will cost you in your pocketbook. And still others it will cost time and friends as you send them to a far, far country. This is a life-disturbing path that Jesus is calling us to follow. Will you follow him regardless? You know, the Apostle Paul says something interesting. He says, since then we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others for the love of Christ compels us. What Will the love of Christ compel you to do about this great need? Our first story today is in Luke chapter 8. The disciples had just weathered the worst storm of their life and having at Jesus' direction left the Jewish side of the Sea of Galilee up in Capernaum and headed to the eastern shore, to the Gentile side, where they were just glad to get their feet on solid ground after they had weathered that great storm. But as soon as they hit land, as soon as they step out of the boat, this is what greeted them. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee, and when Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. And when he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For Jesus had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. And Jesus then asked him, what is your name? And he said, legion, for many demons had entered him. 
and they begged him. The demons begged Jesus not to command them to depart into the abyss. A legion, in Roman military terms, could have been as many as 6,000 men. And the idea here seems to be that there were many demons afflicting this man. Perhaps thousands. They had taken up residence in him. They were wreaking havoc on his life and soul such that he now wanders homeless and naked amongst the tombs. Bound by chains which he then breaks with displays of superhuman strength. And now... He comes charging right at the disciples. The demons whom no one could bind now beg for Jesus not to be bound and cast into the abyss. And so these demons offer up an alternative. A large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside and they begged him to let them enter these. And so Jesus gave them permission. And the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake. And there they drowned. Here was a man tormented by demons. Again, perhaps by the thousand. He was lonely. He's estranged from family and from his community. From everyone. Treated like an animal. Chained up, feared, and rejected by society. He's a slave to evil spirits and evil desires. Wounding himself and others. Matthew, when he tells this story, he says, this man was so violent, no one could even pass this way. This was a man whom Jesus had all kinds of reasons to avoid. He was unclean. He was likely a non-Jew, a Gentile, and a pagan, living in an unclean place amongst the dead, amongst the tombs, in a land of unclean animals, pigs. As an observant Jew, Jesus had every reason to not be here. This was Gentile territory full of pig farmers and demons. And yet Jesus travels that lake and he weathers that storm to go to this pagan land. Why? Just for this man. Just to deliver this nameless man. Because this is the only recorded ministry that Jesus had in this region at this time. He crosses the lake, he encounters this man, and then he leaves. I think Jesus came just for this one encounter with this man who was so very far from God in every imaginable way. Here we see Jesus caring for people nobody else cares about, people that are worthless to society, people that are chained up like animals, people that are pagan and very far from God. This man, though many would have hesitated even to call him that, this man, he matters to Jesus. 
And he, I believe, is the reason Jesus braved the storm and went to the other side of the lake, the Gentile side. And so now, having seen this awesome display of deliverance and authority and rescue, what do you think the townspeople are going to do? They would run to him, right? And they would worship him. And they would drag on stretchers their sick, their sick and their demon-possessed so that this man could heal them, right? That's not right. That's not what they do. In verse 34, when, when those tending the pigs saw what had happened, they ran off, reported it in this town and countryside, and then people went out to see what had happened. And when they came to Jesus, found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. And then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasene asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat, and he returned. These townsfolk have seen a man delivered from a thousand demons and now they ask the deliverer to leave. Why would you ask him to leave? It says they were very afraid. Maybe it was fear. Maybe it was fear of what Jesus would ask of them. Maybe it was fear of what that would cost them. 2,000 pigs, according to Mark, when he tells this story, 2,000 pigs had just dashed off a cliff to total ruin, and it was undeniably a devastating economic loss. Maybe it mattered more to them that a herd of pigs died than that a man's life was restored. Before we finish the story, how will you respond to Jesus? In faith or in fear? Will you welcome Jesus in submission to his authority and follow him, even to places that make you uncomfortable? Or will you beg him to leave you alone in your comfortable life? Well, the man from whom the demons had gone out begged Jesus to go with him. But Jesus sent him away. It's interesting. Every other request in this story is granted by Jesus. The demons beg to be sent into the pigs. He grants their request. The townsfolk beg Jesus to leave. He grants their request. But the only decent request that's made all day is this one. Jesus, let me go with you. And he doesn't grant it. But he does grant this man something else. In verse 39, he tells him, return home and tell how much God has done for you. And so the man went away and told all over town how much Jesus had done for him. So I actually misspoke earlier. It wasn't just for this man that Jesus came. It was for him and for his people. See, in addition to restoring his life and setting him free from the demon's torment, Jesus sends him back to his family. He says, 
return home. He sends him back to his people. He gives him a sense of purpose, of mission. He says, return home and tell how much God has done for you. And he did. And when Mark tells this story, he says, the people in town, they were amazed. And of course, this all makes perfect sense, this man's response, doesn't it? Because if Jesus had delivered you from 6,000 demons and a life of living naked in a cemetery, you'd let folk know, wouldn't you? I mean, you'd want the whole world to know, right? Jesus crossed the lake for this man and for his people. So great was his love for them that he longed for them to be able to join with us in that day in that scene around the throne room of God in Revelation where it says, After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne. And to the land. There's a second curious destination in Jesus' travels. Um, in John chapter 4, Jesus is traveling south to north. It says he left Judea, he departed again for Galilee, and he, he had to pass through Samaria. Um, he had to pass through Samaria. Why did Jesus have to pass through Samaria. On the one hand, it's just how you got there. Like if you're going from Wake Forest to Henderson, you have to pass through Franklinton, right? It's just, it's just how it works. I suppose you could say the GPS required that he should pass through Samaria. But I, I can't help but wonder if there's not another reason, a deeper reason, that he had to pass through Samaria. And I think we're about to meet her. And verse 5 says, So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, and near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph, Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour, and a woman from Samaria came to draw water. So we have a woman all alone, drawing water at midday in the blazing heat of the Middle East. And this, this is, seems odd. Because typically the women would come together in the cool of the morning or perhaps as evening comes. Why does she come alone? Why in the heat of the day? Perhaps one reason, as we're about to see, was that she had a bit of a past. A past that had spilled out in a more public way than many of ours does. And I'm sure way more public than she wanted to be. And Jesus knew her past. He knew why she came alone. If you skip ahead in our story down to verse 16, Jesus says to the same woman, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. How did Jesus know all that? Well, it helps to be God, right? 
things like this. So sitting in this story, we see Jesus, that Jesus is a man just like us. He takes a 20-mile journey, and he's thirsty, and he's tired. And yet at the same time, he is God who knows the details of every one of our pasts. Even the things we wish he didn't. Jesus is fully God here and fully man. But Jesus knows. Jesus knows about this woman's past. He knows whatever shape it took, whether she was a widow five times over or divorced five times or some sorrowful blend of the two. He knows her broken past just like he knows yours and he knows mine. And yet watch how Jesus treats this woman. And remember, he knows. He knows all of her dark secrets. And yet he still talks with her. He still engages her. In verse 7, a woman from Samaria came to draw water and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. And and Jesus speaks to her. And I, I kind of doubt that wasn't the way things worked in her little town. Maybe that's why she came to the well alone. They knew her business, and likely they shunned her for it. That's why she may have been there alone. Jesus, though he knows her past fully, he does not shun her. He engages her in deliberate, and we're going to see pretty intimate conversation. Jesus reaches out to her when no one else will, even though he knows. And even though he has to smash through the barriers of his day's prejudice, it seems that Jesus is drawn to people like her. So much so that he had to pass through Samaria for her. Verse 8, it says, his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. So the Samaritan woman said to him, that leaves Jesus alone with this woman. And the woman says, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Historically, there's no love lost between Jews and Samaritans. Um, in a nutshell, the Samaritans worshipped Yahweh, but had integrated other gods alongside. They worshipped on a different mountain, not in Jerusalem. The Jews viewed them as half-breeds and heretics. Jews wouldn't even share a plate or a cup or a bucket from a well with a Samaritan. When Jewish leaders wanted to slander Jesus, they accused him in John chapter 8 of having a demon and being a Samaritan. And then you press that up against the prevailing view of women in the day, one scholar says that no one would hold a conversation, no man would hold a conversation with a woman on the street, not even with his own wife, and certainly not with any other woman. And so she's a Samaritan, that's strike one. She's a woman, that's strike two. And she's a woman who'd been married five times and was living with a man who wasn't her husband. That's strike three. This woman is out in most anyone's game, but not Jesus' game. He knew all of this, yet he reaches out and he talks with her. 
one of the longest conversations that Jesus has with anyone recorded in the scriptures is with this woman. And so I wonder if she is why Jesus had to pass through Samaria. I think she was. You know, their conversation, you can read it later. It starts about a drink of water from a deep well, and things get deeper from there. It talks about living water and eternal life and Jesus being greater than the, the patriarch Jacob and her horribly broken marital history to the place and nature of true worship. And that's where we drop back into the conversation. In verse 23, Jesus says but the, to her, he says, but the hour is coming and is now here when the, the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And so the conversation has meandered from uh, water to who she's sleeping with, and now it turns to worship. And Jesus says, the Father is seeking worshipers. And that's why I think Jesus had to pass through Samaria. The Father was seeking worshipers in Samaria. Through this broken Samaritan woman, Father was seeking her. And this leads Jesus to do something that's very unusual at this point in his ministry. He fully discloses his identity. He's kind of been veiling it, but not to this woman. So the woman says to him in verse 25, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. And this, is, this is a bit of a shocker. Jesus, as I said, did not reveal himself to the religious leaders this way. He would veil his identity. But he reveals himself to her. To the Samaritan woman with a past, knowing everything about her that he knows, he chooses to reveal himself to her, of all people. And just when his disciples came back, they marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek? Or, why are you talking with her? So the disciples are shocked, and they are wondering... What are you doing with him? And why are you talking to her? So the woman left her water jar, went away into town where she would talk with her friends about what just happened. She leaves her water jar. Maybe she's in a hurry. or Maybe she left it for Jesus. Or maybe she discovered a water that matters more. A living water. A water that cleanses you from your past. So you can be free of guilt and shame and free to be a worshiper that the Father is seeking in spirit and in truth. That woman left her water jar. She went into town, said to the people, come see a man who told me um, all that I've done. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and were coming to him. As the townsfolk come, Jesus says something quite remarkable to his disciples. He takes his disciples, he says, do you not say there are yet four months and then come the harvest? He says, look, the townspeople are coming out. He says, look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. 
And Jesus says there are a lot of people here like this woman. People who seem very far from God spiritually and culturally. And yet they are ready to believe in Jesus if someone just goes and tells them. And that's what happens next in verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in Jesus because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So the Samaritans came to him and they asked him to stay with him and he stayed there two days. And I'm sure that totally messed with his disciples. Many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you've said that we believe, for we have heard ourselves and we know that this is indeed the savior of the world. And so this woman's role in her town changes, right? Her whole life in town is changing now. She goes back to town. She engages those from whom she had been isolated. She goes to those who had wronged her and abandoned her and had turned her out. And she goes to share her hope with them. And she connects them to the bearer of living water, someone greater than Jacob, the one who can free them from their pasts too. And as a result, the whole town has changed. People who have never heard the story of Jesus before have now heard and many believed that Jesus is, as they say it, the Savior of the world. There's a scholar in the 4th century, his name was Ephraim the Syrian, and he summarizes this story beautifully. He says, Jesus came to the well as a hunter. He threw a grain before one pigeon that he might capture the whole flock. At the beginning of the conversation, he did not make himself known to her. So first she caught sight of a thirsty man, and then a Jew, and then a rabbi, and afterwards a prophet, and last of all the Messiah. She tried to get the better of the thirsty man. She showed her dislike of the Jew. She heckled the rabbi. She was swept off her feet by the prophet. And finally she adored the Christ. See, and this is why We do missions amongst people who are far from God, who are yet to hear. The fields are white, Jesus says. There are a lot more people like her, like the people in her town who are ready to believe all over the world. If someone will just go and tell them, because he is the Savior, the Savior of the world. And in our day, these people groups who are yet to hear are are Muslim and Hindu and Buddhist and atheist. And they live by the millions, by the millions in a region called the 1040 window. And I wonder if you can hear Jesus saying to us today, I have to go there. I have to pass through the 1040 window. The fields are white to harvest there. I love this story because of who Jesus shows himself to be. He is fully God. He is fully man. And I love the way he deals with this woman. Um, History later named her. They called her Fotina, which means light, which is beautiful as she bears the light of the love of Jesus to her own people. 
And I love the way it ends. Many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, we know that this is indeed the savior of the whole world. And a whole village, a whole people come to know Jesus as their savior. And that, I think, is why Jesus had to pass through Samaria. That's why he went to the other side of the lake. There were people there who didn't know who he was. People chained by sin and evil, by past sins and false beliefs, and Jesus' love compelled him to go there to these unlikeliest of places. What will the love of Christ compel you to do? Will it compel you to go? To go and live amongst those who are yet to hear maybe even the name of Jesus? Will it compel you to help us send? To give more than you ever have. To pray with more faithfulness than you have before for those that we send. You know, they tell us that just shy of a third of the world's population is waiting to hear the name and the story of Jesus. Maybe for the very first time, a third of the world is waiting. We really should go. And we really must send. And oh, how we must pray. Choosing house.